Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. 2-0 or 2-2, and it's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore and joining me in this Google Hangout are... Matt Kukum. Mitchell Crumb. And guys, do you believe, as Donald Trump Jr. believes, that his his uh, father is now two and zero in impeachment trials, or is he two and two since technically he got impeached twice and then acquitted twice? <laughs> What's the proper scorekeeping here? I as far think... as I'm aware, presidents don't set out to get impeached, so. I don't know. Maybe uh, Trump two, America zero. That's maybe how I would say. <laughs> okay. All right. What, what's the most cynical way I can frame this? I just say you're you're so. you're fishing for it. You're looking for the yeah. cynical. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have a couple things to talk about today. We're going to start with impeachment, and then, much like Congress, we're going to try to shrug our shoulders and get over that as quickly as possible. And then we're going to talk about um, some <laughs> things that are happening in Congress, which maybe impeachment tells us about. And what are the ramifications of that? So thanks for joining us, guys. First, uh, Matt, what, in, in short form, went down with the second impeachment of Donald J. Trump? Okay, so um, I guess it was the beginning of, of the past week. Um, on Monday, there was a discussion over the constitutionality of the impeachment trial, whether or not a trial can be conducted in the Senate. Um, after a president leaves office, um, and also whether whether the Senate could actually bar a president from holding office in the future, there was a discussion on that, sort of an up and up or down vote on that, um, which sort of sort of set the stage for the the following debate over the impeachment, the article of impeachment itself, um, which didn't take that long. It was a fairly quick trial um, by impeachment trial standards. Um, basically, there was two days, um, two full days allotted for both. Both the prosecution and the defense, so to speak. Um, the prosecution basically took most of its allotted time. Um, uh, it included a video presentation um, sort of outlining sort of what went down in the riot and sort of tying um, particular things that were said done by the rioters to things that were said and done by Trump. Um, then um, and then after that, the, the defense had a chance to make its case. They did not use all their time. They basically used um, basically a day. Um, and then it looked like the, the Senate was going to wrap up the trial on Saturday. There was like this sort of kerfuffle um, regarding uh, the possible calling of witnesses, um, which was kind of how the whole thing went down was sort of botched and weird. But in the end, they decided not to call witnesses and they proceeded forward with the actual vote um, this past Saturday. And we know that um, seven Republicans actually joined 50 Democrats to vote to convict Trump. So the seven Republicans, um, most of these were expected. So Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Richard Burr, Ben Sass, Pat Toomey, and uh, Bill Cassidy was the sort of the most recent, um, the newest addition as well. Um, he had actually originally um, voted um, 
to say that that the impeachment process was was probably not constitutional, but then he ended up changing his mind um, after he heard um, sort of an extended case for impeachment from um, from the prosecution. Um, so, at any rate, those seven joined the fifty, which of course is shy of the sixty-seven that were required to to actually uh, convict and then potentially set the stage for a vote to bar. So we didn't even get close to that. Um, and so, in the end, uh, Trump is acquitted um, for a second time. And I should just want to add one quick thing, which is Mitch McConnell, the um, illustrious Senate Majority Leader. Uh, now Minority Leader. But. Now Minority Leader. <laughs> voted to acquit the president, but after, uh, but both before and after his vote for acquittal, gave really scathing remarks where he basically accused Trump of the exact things the impeachment trial was assessing Trump on, which is he argued that Trump knowingly and willingly provoked the mob to um, to cause the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, he stopped short of saying that Trump directly intentionally directed it, but basically said he stoked and incited all of the, um, the insurgency itself. And that was basically what the, what the impeachment trial was over. Uh, that itself has redu- produced a very strong reaction from Donald Trump. Donald Trump, bereft of his Twitter account, has resorted to um, a policy or memos, um, but he released about an 800 word memo just skate called uh, um, Mitch McConnell a part a dour partisan hack, which is uh, <laughs> not something I've heard him tweet before. Mike, nice to hear the word dour, but um, <laughs> rather than loser, for example, but. Yeah, so this was um, this was surprising, I think, from McConnell, who probably could have just quietly let this die. Why did McConnell decide to throw one more haymaker at Trump here? I mean, there are probably at least a couple of reasons. Um, you know, McConnell doesn't do anything without a good strategic um, long-term plan. Yep. And, I mean, I think McConnell actually laid it out. Um, I can't remember if it was in... I think it was I think it was responding to some of the backlash he took from the speech. I mean, he said his only priority was trying to get victories come, uh, you know, a year from November. So, uh, you know, so if you're thinking about um, uh, McConnell, I mean, that's always kind of his end game is how can he how can he nail things down for, you know, for the Republicans in the Senate. And, you know, one of the things I was reading and I can't remember who the author was now off the top of my head. Um, I'll try to I'll try to look it up here, but you know, basically sketched um, the problem that the Republicans are facing right now, which is the Republican Party is basically a minority party um, in the country. They have you know fewer members. They seem to be losing members more quickly than the Democratic Party, um, and they're losing them in critical places, um, oftentimes in right. places that uh, you know that matter for winning Senate seats and for winning electoral votes. And so, with that in mind, you know, McConnell is basically trying to thread the needle of, of keeping Trump voters in the party while also not losing any additional um, people who can't stand Trump. And so McConnell's kind of literally trying to have it both ways where he's trying to make everybody happy so that, so that the party doesn't bleed more, um, more voters, because as soon as they start bleeding more voters, it looks, you know, the, the 2022 map for Republicans looks, looks challenging. And it looks even more challenging if you're bleeding more and more voters, especially suburban voters who don't want uh, anything to do with Trump. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I think Republicans face 
near impossible task of, I mean, we might, you know, want them for principled reasons to come out and sort of vote against Trump and to, you know, make the same sort of statement that McConnell did. Um, at the same time, you know, there's there's a third to a half of, of you know, rank and file voters in the GOP um, that are still fully behind Trump. Um, you know, there's a, a very, you know, a majority in some instances of the G, you know, GOP rank and file members think the election was stolen, um, believe that uh, Antifa was the one that instigated the riot at the Capitol, um, believe that Trump's behavior does not constitute an impeachable offense. Um, and so when you have, you know, that large of a mass that that thinks one way, but then another, you know, even larger group of people that um, that is tired of Trump in some capacity, like you can't really f afford to alienate completely either side. And so hence this, you know, sort of, you know, attempt to sort of, you know, you know, cut the baby in half, right? Um, which, you know, oftentimes doesn't end up well strategically. Particularly um, but for that's, the baby. That's what they're yeah, well, <laughs> yes, it's it's just it's just not good. No one wins. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, but I think that's, that's what McConnell's trying to do. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that it's going to work out well in the end, but I think, I think McConnell realizes that, that Trump, um, that, that the GOP cannot win in the future if, if they do not sort of put some distance between themselves and Trump, but they can't do that too quickly or too brazenly, right? Or they sort of lose some of Trump's base, which they need, right? So I think, I think yes. I'll go a step further and suggest that um, we just signed ourselves up for four more years of Donald Trump in political life, because <laughs> regardless of whether, even if he's made up his mind right now that he will not be running for president again in 2024, he, it would be shocking for me for him to, to see him take a step back from public life. Uh, he relishes the spotlight. He relishes roiling the party. Um, this was his goal all along back in 2015 before it looked like he was going to win. Um, and he's going to be more than content for the next four years to to tease, threaten, cajole the Republican Party over the possibility that he might run um, or some member of his, of his family might run for something as well. And the, uh, Mitch McConnell knows that. And I think you're right, Matt. He, he is he is chagrined that now he has to deal with tr with the possibility of Donald Trump as the leader of the party for the next next four years. So. Let me ask you guys sort of a question. Trump has been kind of in hibernation, um, at least by Trump standards. Mm -hmm. um, and the question to me is, how long can he stay in hibernation before he has to come out and then sort of reinforce reinforce the Trump loyalty test, right? Um, mm -hmm. How much longer can he sort of stay you know, you know, stay golfing in, in, in Florida before he has to go out there and try to bring some of these people back into the fold, right? Because there's there's currently the Trumpy people, right? There were three camps. You have the, the Trumpers, the former Trumpers, and the never Trumpers. The never Trumpers are a really small group, right? The the other Trumpers are all, you know, the Trumpers are sticking with Trump, but there's the there's this sort of set of people in the middle that are very willing to sort of detach themselves from Trump and move on because they have incentives to do so. Um, but Trump is going to have to find a way to keep those people in the fold. How long can he basically wait until he goes out and and takes a disciplined approach to bringing those people back into the fold? What do you guys think? Matt, my quick reaction is that he actually has more time than we think. Okay. Uh, there are actually two different sort, two different, uh, two different dragons that Trump is feeding. There's the dragon of his of his supporters. 
But there's also the dragon in the media. Now, it's true. The media thrived on the daily scandalous treat scandalous tweet from trump um they were treats too let's be clear. oh they were sometimes oh, they yes. were treats. Um, <laughs> they were always tweets uh and the media is if if it will still happily gobble up any one of those whenever they come but it's unclear to me whether the media is going to follow him on parlor or follow him on you know some other forum other than twitter now he has shown just as he did with mcconnell the ability to put out a, a memo and that's quite a very different sort of venue or forum than, a, than, a, than Twitter. But I would say that for his supporters, they're going to be willing to wait. And in fact, I would even suggest that perhaps absence makes the heart grow fonder. So that if Trump even kind of lays low for a little while and then makes some kind of dramatic return, not through Twitter, but like through hold it, beginning to hold a series of rallies, um, a series of events, a, telev a televised production of some kind, uh, perhaps on Fox News or OAN, I think uh, it will fan the flames that never really quite died down. I think he's got a long. I think he's got he's got a long leash on this. Mitch, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think I think the place to look for Trump to reemerge is in a few months here when primary candidates are coming out. Um, I think that's that's when Trump is going to basically make his make his presence heard. And I think getting back to sort of events, it's going to be. Does he show up for, you know, more Trump friendly, you know, candidates um, to try to primary sitting Republicans? Um, I think I think that's the that's the thing to look for. And I think that's very distinctly possible. I mean, as we already know, Trump has said that he's very, you know, he's obviously unhappy with Mitch McConnell. He's unhappy with those seven Republicans who voted against his uh, or voted voted in favor of, of, of conviction. And there are some other folks that he might uh, not be super happy with either, who haven't been as 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 loyal to him as he as he'd like. So, I think that's one of the first things to look for is to see. Um, and I and I think in many ways, I mean, that's going to be the measure of whether Trump continues to lead the party. Um, you know, because I think he can hold rallies and he can go out and try to do things, but I think the real measure is going to be does he try to actually push the politics of the party in the time between now and four years from now. And if he doesn't, I'm not sure that he continues to remain the same factor. I mean, if, if, if he doesn't, then that means other people are starting to take the reins of the party and direction of the party. You know, that means Mitch McConnell is going to have more control over who the Republicans are in the Senate and things like that. And so, yeah. And, and I, and I do think Trump knows that I think he's, I, so I do expect him to emerge, but I think that's where his emergence is going to come out is in trying to set up primaries um, primary opponents to to try to take down not sufficiently Trump friendly Republicans. We should invite one of our former students on here, Mitch, who is a uh, old hand at Alaskan politics, and find yes. out if <laughs> there is a viable Trumpist who might run against Lisa Murkowski. Yeah. Matt, am I correct that Murkowski is the only senator who's up in twenty two out of the ones who voted to impeach, voted to I convict? So. I mean, yeah, I think so. So if someone's going to get primaried out of that group of seven Republican senators, it'd be Murkowski. Well, she ran it as independent the previous time, right? Correct. Um, because of yeah, her uh, path has been weird. Yep. Yeah. So um, she could probably adapt. I so so I have no doubt that there will be Trumpy primary challengers. My question is: Is Trump going to be willing to put in the hard work of holding rallies for these Trumpy primary challengers? And because it's 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 really not about him and his campaign. It will require him to. To, I mean, he could he could try to make it right, but I don't know. Like he's he's never really been super dis. I don't know. 
I, yeah, I think he I, survived something about discipline. his discipline and to in, in doing that. I don't know. I guess let's I should say, say, Senate, say we have a kind of a, let's say we have a kind of a Trumpy replacement for Rob Portman in Ohio, and um, Trump shows up. And he doesn't really. He, he he basically says this person's great, and then he spends the rest of the rally talking about himself, right. and the crowd loves it, and the candidate loves it because now you've got a lot of attention on the candidate, even right. if the rally wasn't really about them. And I think yeah. that's going to become par for the course. Yeah. And I think it, this applies to the House too. I think you know we're going to see House members, especially again the ten that voted um, in favor of impeachment, they're definitely going to see serious serious primary challenges. Um, so, but yeah, but I think, I mean, one of the things about Trump is I think, I think Chris is absolutely right. You don't, ha he doesn't have to go and show up and, and say anything about him. Um, the real question, and I think this is where, and this is what's giving Mitch McConnell fits. Um, and, and also, and also, um, 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 I'm blanking on <laughs> house minority leader's name here kevin mccarthy Schumer. oh uh, yeah house mccarthy yeah. Right. yeah yeah mccarthy um you know what's, what's giving them fits is just you know that that so far especially given the track record in georgia this has not always turned out well and so i think they're worried that these primary challenges may make the party more trump friendly but also may um lead to more defeats yeah well guys we've talked about what uh this impeachment tells us about donald trump's future and perhaps Mitch McConnell's future. Uh, what does this tell us about Congress? Congress is dysfunctional as an institution. It <laughs> doesn't look out for its institutional interest, right? Um, so, I mean, so, it, you know, impeachments have always been partisan. And this is the most sort of bipartisan um, impeachment trial outcome that we've had, despite the fact that it did not result in sort of conviction. Um, that said, you know, it's it's pretty fascinating that what we have is we have a president who, over time, you know, built up, you know, and encouraged people to, to ultimately literally storm the Capitol. Um, and there's pretty compelling, more more and more emerging evidence that this is the case. And to basically try to stop, um, to basically attack Congress and pressure Congress to overturn the vote of the Electoral College, um, and Congress as an institution as, as an institution should be completely outraged. Um, and you know, regardless of you know of partisanship, could be completely outraged and say this is this we're not going to stand for you know the president whip, whipping up a right you know an insurrection against us, right? And so we're going to vote to impeach him and say this is unacceptable. There's consequences for presidents who do this. Um, you will go down if you do this. Um, we will bar you from holding office. But Congress isn't doing that, and that that tells me that you know partisan interests um, are continuing to override institutional interest, even when um, even when literally it's a matter of life and death for members of Congress <laughs> um, or holding presidents accountable for for events that have been a matter of life and death for Congress. Um, so this indicates that sort of the institutional interests of Congress are all but dead. Um, we can unpack that, but that's what this that's what this impeachment tells me. Yeah. And I mean, I think if, if this is this also points to sort of the larger um, impotence of Congress in many ways. Yes. I mean, Congress has basically made itself in, in a lot of ways irrelevant. Um, yes. You know, when we when if you look at the last, you know, decade, decade and a half, even 
um, the number of major pieces of legislation that substantially changed U.S. policy is really, really thin. Um, you know, you can think of the tax overhaul um, that the Republicans did right after uh, Trump was elected. You think about the Affordable Care Act. And once you get past those, I mean, you're hard pressed to find too many major um, accomplishments in, in Congress. I mean, there are, of course, always little things and small regulations and things that get moved around. Um, but in terms of big, big picture, big ticket reforms or, um, you know, new policies or programs, that's, you know, that's mostly it. And, and I think that's, you know, that, that kind of gets back to, you know, again, you know, I know we talked last time about increased polarization, you know, Congress members are just increasingly unwilling to work with each other and they increasingly don't feel like there's a serious incentive to even legislate. You know, if we go back to, you know, Mayhew, and, you know, Congress, the electoral connection, you know, the fundamental incentive of Congress members is to get reelected. And yep. what they've kind of discovered over the last couple of decades is they don't actually have to do anything to get reelected. And once you've kind of figured out that the whole name of the game to keeping your job is not actually passing legislation, but is instead um, just as Mayhew would say it, position taking and <laughs> credit claiming and things like that, you know, just these sort of saying that you stand for something and giving a fiery speech on the floor or, or what have you. <laughs> um, once you figure out that that's all you need to do to get reelected and to get people to vote for you, then why bother? Why put in the hard work? Because inevitably legislation makes some people angry. Giving a fiery speech doesn't usually make people angry. And so you just end up, you know, there's, there's sort of all, all, all downsides to actually working. Plus, you know, who wants to work? Nobody wants to work, you know, so so there's all downsides to actually doing the work and all upsides to just doing nothing. And that's, you know, that essentially that's that's been where we are. And the same thing applies to impeachment. There's, um, you know, there's all all upsides to um, to basically just sitting back and not and not doing anything, not 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 convicting the president. Yeah. yeah. So we've so we've got um, a a diagnosis here. Congress is dysfunctional, but as political scientists, we have to go to the root causes. So if you're going to give, I know there are lots of reasons why Congress has ended up in the place where it is. There's path dependency issues. There's institutional issues. There are um, societal polarization issues. If you're going to give me your top couple of things to for people to look to, what has put Congress in the position it's in right now to be the kind of Congress that you both have just described? I mean, I think there are a number of things that we can talk about. I mean, but one of the one of the key ones, actually, um, that uh, sometimes doesn't get talked about. Well, there, there, there are a couple. I mean, what you need to think about when you're trying to make Congress functional is the again, going back to these institutional incentives, like what allows people to actually legislate and get some kind of reward for it. And so I actually think what the Democrats have proposed starting to do in this Congress is actually pretty. Um, promising in some ways because they're essentially bringing back earmarks or what was um, you know unaffectionately labeled pork barrel spending mm -hmm. and uh, basically for those of you who maybe you know don't don't remember pork barrel spending um, <laughs> for folks in our audience who may anyway um, you know pork barrel spending is basically just setting up a, a, a little chunk of money that specifically goes to a project in a specific district or state so you basically are taking money um, and assigning it to build a new bridge or a library or a park or something in somebody's district. And the reason you do that is because this is a way to essentially allow a Congress member to make an uncomfortable vote. So you have a bill 
where their constituents might not otherwise like this bill. It might be a bill that maybe changes policy in a way, I don't know, just to use an example, like maybe this is a bill that somehow increases regulation on guns, but you happen to be from a district that's very pro-gun. So in order to get your vote on this, we tack on an extra little thing that says you're going to get the most beautiful bridge you can imagine um, in your district, and it's going to bring in millions of dollars and tons of jobs. And so then when you go home to talk about this bill, you can say, yeah, yeah, there's something about guns in there. But really what matters for us is that we're getting this massive bridge. Mm -hmm. And you can basically kind of distract your constituents and say, look at this wonderful thing that I'm doing. And of course, you can hopefully get your name on it and cut a bunch of ribbons and all that. So that's one way, right, is you give, again, it comes back to those electoral incentives where you give Congress members more ways to sort of electorally appeal to their constituents while still voting for substantive legislation that might not otherwise be able to pass. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's other ways too. I mean, another way that I'm particularly attracted to is increasing this is, and I know, again, this sounds sort of nefarious in some ways, but it's increasing the secrecy of Congress. Mm. Um, in a lot of ways, one of the big problems with Congress right now is everything is literally out in the open. Um, you know, nobody is able to sort of negotiate behind closed doors. And, um, you know, on, on the one hand, of course, having things behind closed doors always makes us worried that maybe people are doing things that are not in our best interest. Smoke like rooms, that. for example. Yeah, yeah. We literally need the smoke-filled rooms back. Um, and But on the other hand, if you have the smoke-filled rooms, you're able to make a bargain with, uh, with people to actually get something done, and not everybody has to know... Um, all of the all of the terrible things that maybe you had to talk about to get to to get to that bargain they just see the outcome and then they can debate you know whether this is a good outcome or not they don't have to see that and, right. and just sorry I know I've been talking too long I'll say this no and you're good up and, um, but one of the things just to note is like this idea that you need secrecy to do important and difficult things is something that goes all the way back to the founding I mean the writing of the Constitution itself was done in complete secrecy and, you know, the fact is nobody actually knew what happened at the Constitutional Convention pretty much until all the founders were dead. And so that was all pretty much secret. And that was, you know, in many ways that was seen as the key to being able to hammer out something that was very substantial and very consequential, like setting up a constitution. And so in the same way for us, if we're going to have legislation that's substantial and, you know, does something, then we need to give space for legislators to actually have these kinds of frank difficult discussions without having everybody listening over their shoulder all the time. Yep. No, I, I, I agree 100% with all of that. I mean, so the introduction of C-SPAN, um, you know, to, you know, to the floors of Congress and to the committee rooms, you know, is, is nice to be able to, you know, people can, citizens can watch the inner workings of Congress. On the other hand, um, especially in committee rooms, so it's probably a bad idea, right? Like the committees are, are where the real work gets done or it's supposed to get done. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, uh, having, you know, I mean, making laws um, has been compared to making sausages because it's kind of ugly, <laughs> right? It, it's messy, right? Um, and giving people a window into that, um, especially when people don't understand the process or understand the importance of compromise um, and bargaining, uh, people who don't understand the importance of that can sort of be find the whole process to be abhorrent, right? But it's it's necessary. You're not going to make the sausage any other way, right? Um, and so, and so, you know, this is like where Mick said, you know, some, you know, the use of earmarks um, can actually help sort of grease the legislative tracks. Um, it's it's probably worth, 
you know, yeah, it costs extra money, right? But it's better than having unelected bureaucrats decide where the money goes. Better to have members of Congress who know their states and districts to make a decision. The money's going to flow somewhere. The question is, where is it going to flow? Who's going to be in charge of it, right? So, so I think, you know, the, the cost of the earmarks is, well, you know, if that helps Congress pass legislation that tackles serious problems, like that's a price that I'm willing to pay. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, and, and because members of Congress don't have earmarks um, to point to to their constituents because Congress isn't passing policy. All they can really do is go on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and be pundits. That's all they can really do. Right. Um, which that's not conducive to to doing good legislative work. Um, a couple of other thoughts of things sort of possible reforms or things that could help out sure. um, is to to give committees more power. Um, I mean, you can look at, you know, basically, I mean, committees is, is where you're supposed to see members of Congress come together and hammer out, you know, hammer out policies, hold the executive accountable. But basically, committees no longer no longer have this power um, for several different reasons. Committees are primarily about holding hearings, um, which of course are televised, right? So these are used to sort of score political points. Um, so, you know, hearings are not useful for finding facts. They're useful for, for scoring political points with constituents back home. Um, members of Congress will get up and they will, you know, they will give the same speech. Every single one of them will give the same speech, um, which they can then sort of, you know, use to create sound bites, which can be played back in their home states and, and districts. Right. That's that's what committees are about. And committees need to be able to do real work. And part of the problem here is that committees, they can they can do the hard work of creating legislation, but there's no guarantee that legislation is even going to be considered and brought to the floor, um, especially in the House of Representatives. So um, the House of Representatives is, is extremely top down. It's very hierarchical. Um, if if Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and sort of the, the Democratic leadership, um, if if they don't want if they don't want a piece of legislation to get to the floor, that's been worked on a committee for a couple of years, it won't get to the floor. Um, there's been instances in which leaders, they would rather not have the actual policy be discussed on the floor of the House and be voted up or down. They would rather basically table the bill and not address the bill so then they can keep it as an issue in the election that they can run on, right? Mm -hmm. um, they would rather have issues that they can run on that actually solve real problems. Um, and so until leadership is, is willing to, to give some of that up, right. And actually be willing to let committees solve real, you know, real policy problems, we're never going to get out of this. Sorry, I hit mute on my thing. I think just to, just to build on that. Um, one thing that I was, uh, that I, that, that, that I was showing to my classes and I actually watched for the first time myself, um, just a couple months ago is um, uh, a documentary called State Legislature. Um, and I, I highly recommend it if you can if you can get a hold of it. And it seems kind of boring when you first get into it. It's over three hours long. Um, but basically, it's mostly looking at committee work in state legislatures. And uh, what it's what it's essentially showing is all the ways that they're sort of like doing exactly what Matt's describing, like horse trading and doing all these kinds of like serious things. But part of the reason they're able to do that is, again, because they're a state legislature and nobody's paying attention. Exactly. <laughs> you know, nobody's watching. It's not like they're you know streamed on C-SPAN or anything else. You know, nobody's really paying attention to to what the Idaho uh, state 
committee on you know livestock or whatever is doing. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you, you know, know that's a hot ticket, Mitch. Come I on. know it's yeah. great. Yeah, and if and if you watch state legislature, you can see them debating brands. Um, what brand should be anyway? So <laughs> he needs actual iron brands. Just for it your is actually brands. <laughs> that is true. Yep, red hot. Yep. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it is a hot topic. Anyway, but anyway, but at any rate. <laughs> Um, but at any rate, uh, yeah, and 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 so if you want to see that in in action, like they're actually able to do things because they aren't constantly being watched that way. And it's not that their constituents can't hold them accountable. I mean, they're going to see the ultimate bills that they pass, right? I mean, the citizens of these states are ultimately going to see the bills, feel the effects, things like that. So they can hold people accountable. It's just that in that hashing out process, they don't have to do that in front of everybody. Yeah, and I think. I think one thing to keep in mind is that all these things are sort of reinforcing, right? So if Congress sort of gives up its power, it doesn't have incentives to actually use power because using power is actually detrimental to getting reelected, um, then that power is going to flow somewhere else. The power is going to flow to the judiciary. It's going to flow to the executive. And so the expansion of judicial and executive power over the past 20, you know, 20, 30 years comes directly from Congress sort of ceding this power, right? And so that means that that sort of the, the stakes for who wins the presidency or who gets to put, you know, justices on the Supreme Court become so high, right? Um, which just sort of further further heats up our politics, right? Um, and and so sort of the there's the obverse of this as well. So if, so, so, this, so then people sort of focus on the presidency, right? Because the president, you know, controls everything and ultimately gets to pick, you know, Supreme Court justices, right? Uh, but the obverse is true. If, if Congress actually started to exercise more power, be more involved in crafting legislation, then sort of the, the political fights would shift to Congress, right? So if Congress starts doing real work, um, like, well, then it really matters who controls Congress. It doesn't really matter who controls Congress now all that much, right? It matters for, you know, whether or not we have divided government or unified government, right? But it, it doesn't really matter who controls Congress because Congress doesn't really do anything. But if Congress starts doing stuff, people are going to start paying a little bit more attention, right? Um, and Congress is 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 better equipped to be representative of, of the country at large, being, you know, a a body of 535 members. Um, the president is one person. The president can't really represent the whole country, um, much less just a small part of it, right? So so I think if, if Congress were to begin to exercise more power, then people would start paying more attention to Congress. The stakes of who controls Congress would go up, which would incentivize members of Congress to um, wield power more effectively and to take legislation effectively, um, which would in turn, you know, mean that all of a sudden legislation is tied to electoral politics more effectively, right? Um, and so, and then you get a snowball effect in, in, in the opposite direction, right? So all these things are sort of linked up together. And I think if you can start to generate a little bit of movement in a positive direction, you can get that to that momentum to potentially build. The problem is we're getting momentum in the opposite direction right now. Right. And oh, I heard that anti-Wilsonian sentiment there, though, that the president isn't the most representative member of our government right? uh just yeah well <laughs> you and i probably read the same piece by you you've all have been um that's on, right that's right on, yep. on this and, and i i for one agree um wilson uh all right do you guys want to let the rest of us in on the joke here do you want to explain this 
Well, I mean, Wilson brings shame to political scientists everywhere, I think. Um, so Woodward Wilson. Because <laughs> he was an abhorrent racist? Yes, that well, would be true. Okay. Well, that that's reason number one. Um, there's lots of other reasons. Um, Wilson was was just bloody awful in a lot of ways, but I do not like Wilson. Um for good reasons, um, but yeah, but before, well before Wilson, you know, ran for for political office, he was he was a political scientist actually, um, and and wrote extensively, wrote a number of books. Um, and one of the American of, Political Science Association. Yes, he was, and um, one of his shticks was sort of um, we need to expand the administrative state um, at the federal level. Um, we need to have sort of more uniform federal policies or national policies, not federal policies. Um, and, you know, the president is the most representative of the people because the representative, or excuse me, the president is most re representative because the president is in fact the only one who is elected by a national electorate, right? Mm -hmm. um, ergo, he's the most uh, representative, which, um, which I think, you know, a lot of political scientists today <laughs> developed our concepts of representation. They're a little more sophisticated today. I think most political, thoughtful political scientists would reject that now. Thank goodness. <laughs> but yeah, maybe you have some other things to say along those lines, Mitch. But no, yeah. <laughs> no. I, I think the presidency is very, is very much not representative of lots of things. But uh, well. yeah. I think the other right, thing so, we should. Oh, sorry. Go, yeah. Go ahead, Mitch. Finish your thought. I was just gonna say. I, I think. I think the other thing that we should probably think about while we're talking about different elements of Congress too. I mean, is is sort of the elephant in the room that everybody's talking about, which is of course the filibuster. Yeah. Um, and you know, the filibuster, of course, you know, as everyone's probably aware, just simply means that a senator can occupy the floor for as long as they want. There's no rules on how long speeches are, and the only way you can stop a filibuster is if you have a cloture vote, and a cloture vote requires. 60% um, of the Senate to vote in favor of it. So you essentially need 60 votes in order to stop a filibuster, which essentially has been interpreted and used by minority parties for the last couple of decades as a way to veto anything a minority party that has um, more than 40 senators. Um, uh, yeah, so sorry, I got lost in my sentence there. But yeah, it's a way to veto anything that the minority party doesn't want. Um, and that's that's this is another element this is you know the, people often talk about the fact that the filibuster is not in the constitution it wasn't even really seen in its current form until roughly around the turn of the century um so it's something that's relatively new um in in terms of how the senate functions and that it's been increasing in use just that it's it, you know its obstructive capabilities have been increased in the last two or three decades especially um so there's been a lot of talk of essentially doing away with the filibuster. Of course, elements of the filibuster have already been done away with um, the appropriations process, for yep. example, and uh, also judicial nominees. So maybe just finishing it off. Um, that's one of the other possible possible ways of clearing things away for, for Congress. Yeah, I, I, I'm very torn on the filibuster. Um, so the filibuster, you know, as you pointed out, Mitch, is, you know, it's not in the Constitution. It was actually it was it, it was actually a pure accident in its development. Yep. goes all the way back to to none other than uh, Aaron Burr, um, who who killed Alexander Hamilton, as we all know. Um, it goes all the way back to his time, but it really, you know, as, as you Wait, point out, was nobody wants really... to sing. Nobody's going to sing. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Aaron Burr, talk sir. Less, smile more. Yes. Um, yeah, I probably shouldn't try to sing on this podcast. Um, <laughs> lose listeners. Um, so. So, I mean, the, the weird thing is the filibuster itself is not actually employed directly. 
um, all that often. You rarely see a senator get up and, and you know, give a speech that lasts for hours in an attempt to prevent um, the ending of debate so that an up or down vote can be taken. What senators will do is they will merely threaten to do such a thing. And so yeah. they, will, they will require, um, they will basically place holds on bills. And this is done, this is actually done generally in secret, right? Um, sometimes it's advertised, sometimes it isn't. Um, and this can prevent legislation from being passed. And, um, and you know, basically, as partisanship has increased, um, the use of these holds have increased. Um, so it's become a sort of an obstructionist tool of the minority party, um, which has led to parties who ever hold, you know, the party that holds a majority um, sort of slowly carving out exceptions to the filibuster, right? Whether it's the reconciliation says for the budget, whether it's judicial nominees and so on. Um, I, so I'm torn because, because, you know, the Senate clearly was not designed in the constitution to be a super majoritarian institution, right? Sim simply a majoritarian institution. On the other hand, um, I'm not convinced that sort of the way out of our current problem is to remove obstacles to collective action, right? <laughs> to remove barriers to, um, to collective action, to make it easier, right? I think that maybe a better approach is to is to keep in place the things that require us to have bipartisan agreements, right? Because if we just, you know, especially given the polarized time when we live in which, you know, whatever majority party, you know, let's just face it, majority parties are, have slim majorities, right? And they, and because they have slim majorities, um, you know, they can be defeated in the next election fairly easily. And so they're always looking for reasons to basically run roughshod over the minority party to get an advantage. Right. And so if we remove these, you know, the few sort of super majoritarian methods that we have in place, such as the filibuster, basically we're in danger of the majority party always getting its way on everything. Right. And given the state of both parties and how just completely irresponsible they are and how rotted to the core they are. I don't want any party that has a majority being able to run the whole show. I want there to be sort of forced compromise and I don't necessarily want these obstacles to collective action removed, but I'm probably in the minority um, of political scientists who think this. So. Which is fine. As long as you have a filibuster. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess this is this gets down to a, a, a political theory and a political philosophical question that I'm ill-equipped to answer, which is, what do you want out of your Republican government? What, do you want more pure democracy or do you want um, impediments to mob rule? And this goes back to, gosh, you guys could probably do a lecture on the Federalist Papers here um, on, <laughs> on what we do with that, right? Yeah, I mean... So majoritarianism is, you know, is sort of a necessary feature in some sense of a democracy, but it matters what sorts of majorities we have, right? Um, and the Constitution is designed um, to ensure that sort of momentary flash in the pan majorities aren't able to get their way, um, or at least not get their way easily, right? And so what we have is a system that requires concurrent majorities or composite majorities, right? So majorities that are composed of various various sort of factions and interests that have to find compromises in order to, to get things through the House and the Senate and the President and not be struck down by the courts, right? Um, and 
and this has to be done over over a period of time, right? So that's sort of it, and and so when there's not agreement, right, then then things don't get done, right? But I would rather have have a situation in which there is gridlock um, than have a situation in which a small majority can basically run over the minority of the moment, um, which is exactly what we would have um, if we didn't have some of these sort of stop gaps in place. If we had a simple parliamentary system, for example. I, I guess I guess I'm less sure that the elimination of the filibuster would be would be overly dire, um, particularly since you know we usually are in a situation where we do have divided government in some sense, um, and there sure. usually are you know and just as you know we do have a system where there are frequent elections. I mean every two years you get a new chance um, to turn things around. You know especially in the House and. You know, especially especially given given the back and forth and the frequency with which we have divided government, I'm not sure that the filibuster is 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 really necessary to um, you know prevent an overbearing majority. And I think you know our current moment where we do have united government, the Democrats at least sort of have a majority <laughs> in, in both chambers of Congress, um, and and of course control the presidency. Um, even with that, I mean, there's a pretty even if there were no filibuster, I think there's a pretty substantial limit on what they could um, accomplish. I mean, just if nothing else, you know, there, and if nothing else, there's Joe Manchin and maybe um, a couple other, you know, more yeah. moderate Christmas Democrats. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, um, even with that, you know, you start to think about the strategies of the parties again, and you start to think about that electoral connection. I mean, the crazier you go, once you have power, um, the more likely you are to, again, damage your electoral prospects. You know, the more incremental and careful you are, um, the more likely you are to make fewer people angry. And I think, you know, an obvious example of this would be just to rewind to 2008 and think about the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you know, there was a, a push for a substantial amount of legislation, uh, you know, a major policy change, and that essentially turned control of Congress over to the Republicans. You know, the Democrats had control, and this basically meant that Republicans then took control of Congress. And so, you know, I, I guess I'm less concerned, I guess I'm less worried in that sense about, um, you know, a mass, you know, a, a party going going too far, um, given the number of other institutional divisions that we have, you know, and sort of, in that sense, checks and balances throughout the system. I'm not sure the filibuster yeah. is crucial. No, so, I, I, I agree. I just... What I what I see is this sort of like you know one party sweeps into power has an narrow majority and then they overreach, right? And then there's a there's a, an overreaction to the overreach and then we just just get this vacillation back and forth, um, and ultimately this makes it impossible for Congress to establish sort of long term effective policy, which kicks more more power to to the courts and to the executive branch causes other problems. Um, so I, I agree that I don't think the filibuster is an essential feature of this, but I do think there is, or, or it, it does sort of slow down the action that in a way that I think could be helpful. I think it needs to be reformed. Um, I'm less convinced that we should dump it all together, but your points will take. Okay. Well, let me direct you guys then to offer us something that political scientists are, um, very reticent to do. Uh, is there some 
achievable. And I'm going to put uh, um, several ast- uh, several uh, scare quotes around achievable. <laughs> Is there something that we that the American uh, concerned citizens could root for to achieve that would bring some greater level of functionality to Congress? You're not going to get rid of C-SPAN, guys. You're not going to get. Um, <laughs> You're not going to convince um, members of Congress to immediately eschew their uh, own electoral self-interest and start legislating like good boys and girls. So is there some kind of structural reform that we could be rooting for that might push us back away from this cycle of, of legislative atrophy and decline? I mean, see, Mitchell, I've covered quite a few. I mean, you're not going to get rid of C-SPAN. Which one, which one are you rooting for? Which one would you Well, I mean, you could say, like, we're not getting C-SPAN out of Congress completely, but maybe we wouldn't have have C-SPAN cover the markups, right? Maybe the hearings, but not the markups, right? We're actually working through the the actual nuts and bolts of the legislation. Like that doesn't have to be aired, for example. And you could maybe get that, right? Um, you could, I mean, you could do other things as well. I mean, you could sort of reinvigorate the committees. I think it's doable. Um, it's a stretch right now, but I think that's doable, right? Um, have more power within the committees instead of the 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 upper echelons of congress although that's complicated for other other reasons let me pause you right there matt because what would it take for a speaker of the house say maybe not pelosi but maybe her successor to want to devolve power back to the committees Uh, under what circumstances might that something like that happen i don't think it would be the speaker of the house that would do it okay i I think it would not the current speaker well certainly not the current speaker (laughs) um And probably not, yeah. Uh, but but you could. I, I think I think what you would need to see is something that we've seen a couple times. I mean, the last hundred years, whereas members of Congress decide that they want more power right. for themselves and restructure the rules, um, you know, to empower the committees. Right. Um, okay. So I mean, I think that's what you're looking at. And actually, I mean, just you know, speaking from, there are, do seem to be some rumblings of this, somewhat in both parties. But I mean, I especially think of something like you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I mean. You know, um, she is somebody who, in particular, has wanted, has felt that the, you know, the the, the central centralization of power in the house is is, is a problem. Um, so there are people who are thinking about this. Right. Okay. The the problem is um, is you know whenever you have a situation in which the parties are very polarized. Um, and you know, Democrats are very consistently voting with Democrats. Republicans are very consistently voting with Republicans is this creates a situation in which party leaders can basically get more power. And a lot of times members of Congress will sort of cede over that power to the upper leadership. Um, there's a political science term for this called conditional party government. Um, and it's a thing. Um, and, it, it, you know, basically when members of Congress, you know, within their parties are sort of agree within their parties about sort of their, their course of action, right. Or their ideological position on something there's an incentive for them to give more power over to their leaders to make decisions on what course to chart for their party within that chamber, um, which means that you're getting some of that autonomy for committees that, that's going to be whittled away, right? Um, so you're going to have to get enough sort of fracturing within the parties, within the respective chambers, um, to ultimately get enough members of Congress from both parties on board with sort of getting some of that power back. And here that's more applicable to the House, which is more hierarchical than the Senate, because senators maintain a good deal of sort of individualized power, unlike members of the House. So this is more relevant to the House and the Senate. Um, I do think you're seeing sort of, you're definitely seeing an open civil war in the GOP, 
Um, you're also seeing sort of serious policy disagreements amongst Democrats now that they hold power. And so kind of coming back to Mitch's point, if you get more sort of disagreement, um, that might be something that rank and file members of both parties could agree upon. Like, hey, we actually want to to bring some more power um, back down closer to us. Right. And sort of um, and maybe even reinvigorate the committees. And I think that would actually be a good thing. Mitch, how about you? Do you have an achievable reform that you'd like to root for? Um, I mean, I think the Democrats are already headed in this direction, and, and the Republicans had somewhat started to move this direction too. I mean, but it's the earmarks. I mean, I think um, if there's one achievable thing that, you know, it's it sort of looks bad on you know on paper. I think when people first hear it, like, oh, we're going to start giving money to particular districts or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's something that if if Congress is is willing to just sort of hold its nose and just do it anyway. <laughs> you know, people kind of get over it, I think, especially especially when the money starts flowing. I think that's um, that's when people will kind of, it's, it's, it's a nice thing that everybody can whine about then and be like, oh, look, we spent a million dollars on this bridge to nowhere, you know, or whatever. Um, and people like to whine about those things, but it's something that at the end of the day, it's a cost, I think, that Congress people can bear. Like, it's it's something that they can, at the end of the day, they, they can actually use enough to their advantage that, it's it's not you know it'll do it'll do more good than harm um, for them and so I think that's that's why it, it it'll probably happen. So here's what I like about that idea. Um, speaking as somebody who's outside this world and relies on the two of you to explain how some of these uh, features could perhaps restart some of the legislative uh, gumption of Congress, and that is because of increased transparency, there are some built-in checks on the most egregious forms of pork barrel spending. If yeah. someone really does try to build <laughs> the next bridge to nowhere, um, we're going to hear about it. Um, it's going to be great grist for our for our media cycle, and so um, a, li a little bit of pork barrel spending in the service of greasing the wheels is not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's ways to do it responsibly. You can you can say like members of Congress can only have you know you could even set it up like everyone gets an allotted amount, right? And mm -hmm. then they can specify where this allotted amount goes. It can't go to a private entity. It has to go to a state or local government. And there's rules surrounding that. There's transparency. So there's ways to do it um, in a way that isn't like corrupt and irresponsible, right? Um, it's basically just a, a sort of different way of doing appropriations, essentially. Um, the only other reform that I would suggest, and it, it gets complicated, is more on the demand side, right? So, so okay. basically, you know, there's incentives right now for members of Congress to to get up and to posture and to cater to their ideological base because they're worried about getting primaried from the far side of their party. Republicans are worried about getting primaried from the right. Democrats are getting worried about getting primaried from the left. That's why Schumer has increasingly moved leftward even the past few months because he's worried about getting primaried by um, Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so who's made rumblings about this? Like, this is a thing that you can see. So, um, so I think if we were able to, you know, and how you would do this gets complicated and i'm not sure if this counts as as sort of feasible or realistic but sort of reform the primary system to ultimately give sort of um you know party party organizations more of a say in how and basically the candidates that ultimately get 
on the general election ballot, the people that get to run on the party brand, right? Reforms along those lines, I think, would be are going to be really important, right? Because if you can do that, then you can change some of the incentives for members of Congress. Um, the primary system um, has has done a lot of bad things, I think, for our, for our country. So, um, so I think reforms are definitely needed. Uh, you're not going to get rid of them, right? But I think there's there's things that you can do to make adjustments. Well, there's things ways you can swing more power back towards the party um, system and away from the more radical voters who tend to vote in primary elections. Right? Yeah, I think the another thing. I mean, and this is something that a number of other um, democracies have done, and and I, I do think that maybe there's something to it. Is you start you do a little bit more to require or incentivize people to vote, um, and especially in the primaries. I mean, thinking about the primaries, right? Um, you know, basically, you know, some places do it. Um, you know, you could, it could be a fine or it could be a tax credit or however you want to set it up. But basically you give people, um, some kind of, or, or, or I guess, you know, in our, in our time here of direct cash stimulus payments, maybe we can even just pay people. Um, so, you know, <laughs> thanks for voting. Vote. Here's a 20. That's right. Here's a 20. <laughs> thanks for voting. Um, I would, uh, I would be happy with, although I vote anyway, but you know, anyway, but, <laughs> um, I get I yourself something nice. That's right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but no, seriously, I mean, I mean, doing that would, would again, possibly help to achieve some of the same ends that Matt is talking about, because, right. you know, again, the problem in primaries is you mostly get the, the most partisan, most extreme people who are going to show up to actually vote. And if you incentivize people who are more moderate, who are less invested in the extremes to show up and vote, then you are more likely to get more, more moderate, um, you know, and that way more policy serious in a lot of ways type type candidates. And along these lines, I think, you know, parties, party organizations, um, I mean, currently party organizations are a mess, but, but if parties did a good job sort of policing their own people, right. Um, and basically saying to, to the crazies, like whether it's, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene or even, um, Omar, uh, our illustrious representative from from Minnesota, like sit down and shut up. Um, and if you do crazy things and if you say really nasty things, we're not going to support you. We're not going to give you campaign money um, because you don't represent you're not good for the long term strategic interests of the party. Right. And I think if the parties did a better job policing their own, um, that would also disincentivize um some of the crazy behavior that you're seeing that tends to get the most attention on, on television, which we've learned, media. which we learned from this conversation is one of the chief products that people are seeking from right. Congress, which is attention on television. Yep. Right. All right, guys, we got to wrap up here. Let me preview where we're going with this. So um, we've spent this uh, podcast talking about why Congress is dysfunctional, maybe some of the ways to fix it, but we're going to talk about one of the consequences of that dysfunctionality next time, which is we're going to look at some of the ways that Biden has tried to essentially arrogate powers to himself um, and govern in the absence of Congress's ability to legislate. Specifically, we're going to look at some of Biden's executive orders, which have been an order <laughs> of magnitude <laughs> greater than uh, his predecessors. So we're going to unpack what that looks like, and we'll have to save that for our next podcast. Real quick, though, before we go, guys, I need a quick hit from you. Um, Joe Biden has made a decision to bring back the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, which was uh, established under George W. Bush uh, and used... Uh, as a way of outreach to evangelicals um, under the Bush administration, 
It was it languished into obscurity under the Obama administration and was outright canceled under the Trump administration. So it's been a while since we've had an Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. Biden's bringing it back. Is this a big deal or not a big deal in your minds? Uh, my 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 first reaction is that it's uh, it's not it's not really a big deal. Um, I think I think in many ways this is you know as 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 with as with you know there's 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 a big difference in the executive you know in, in, in the way the White House is structured between places that matter and places you know committees and things that don't and you know you think about things that matter like you know the Office of Management and Budget the um, you know the the uh, joint Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? Things like that. Like those, mm-hmm. those folks matter. Um, but something like Office of Faith-Based Initiatives is more, I think, PR. Um, it's okay. basically there for for Biden to 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 be able to say, "Look, I'm I'm reaching out," um, even though they don't actually influence anything substantive. Okay, I I totally agree with that. In one sense, it really doesn't matter. Um, it's it's not going to impact elections. Um, on the other hand, it is part of a, a broader pattern, which is interesting um, in that, you know, you've seen sort of Biden on the campaign trail, Biden in his inaugural address, um, make lots of religious references, um, yeah. you know, appeal to religious principles, appeal directly to religious people. Um, and, you know, he is a practicing Catholic and whatever you might say about, you know, you know, Biden's sort of, you know, the, the, the authenticity or gen- genuineness of his faith or, or his beliefs or whatever. Um, he is, he is doing that. And you, and you are also seeing sort of an opening or sort of to the democratic party, even the national level towards trying to make appeals to religious people, right? Not to, you know, sort of white conservative evangelicals, um, but to, but to other, other practicing, um, other believers, right? So, and and you're seeing that consistently. I mean, I'm thinking of of um, I guess it was um, Warnock down in Georgia, right? He's mm-hmm. he's a he's a pastor, right? And he he infused you know some of his campaign with um, religious rhetoric um, and principles, right? You know, yep. not, I'm saying I agree with him and how he did that, but um, but you're you're starting to see Democratic Party sort of realize like we actually there's a lot of religious folks out there. Um, and they're more, they're, they're a huge, huge population. Um, and we need to actually start taking that more seriously. Um, because, you know, for the past 20, 30 years, Democrats haven't taken that seriously. And I think they're starting to wake up to that. And so I think this little, this little piece that you mentioned, Chris, is kind of a part of that broader trend, which I think we should keep an eye on. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's kind of where I'm at with it too. Is I'm going to keep an eye on this. Um, yeah, it, it, uh, there are progressive evangelicals. There's like at least five of them, uh, but there are progressive evangelicals who are looking for the Democratic Party to reach out to uh, evangelical voters. And I'll seriously, I joke, but um, a substantial portion of evangelicals of color are progressive. And if yep. there are ways the Democratic Party could even take half measures towards reaching out to those populations, um, it's a way of, of solidifying a group that's felt adrift in the current electoral system. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, guys, this has been fun. I'm going to have to bring you back in a couple of weeks to talk about Biden's executive orders. Who knows? By then, he might have triple digits. We'll see. Um, <laughs> it's been a lot. There's been a lot of them. Um, all right. Thanks for listening. You can always reach out uh, to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Um, you can reach out to us individually. 
but you have to find our emails on our school websites. So go out for that. Um, and uh, you can also uh, subscribe to this channel. There's lots of great stuff coming. Um, I'm going to just prime the pump here a little bit. If you're a fan of Jenny's ice cream, you're going to want to tune in next week as we uh, have something special coming down the channel. And um, uh, make sure you subscribe to hear things like Avatar with Academics, um, Tweet Victory, Book, um, Bookish at Bethel, Video Store, all kinds of great stuff. Thanks for listening. We love doing this. We hope you like listening. Until you hear from us next time, go Royals. Go Royals.